Welcome to Justice Is Now, the podcast. Justice Is Now is a charity with an aim of increasing the conviction rates regarding sexual violence. In each episode, we will be discussing various issues relating to this from many angles and discussing how education for criminal barristers could be changed. We will also be looking at understanding offending behavior on a deeper level. And of course, we will continue to amplify the voices of survivors. Learn more about the work of Justice Is Now. All the details are below each episode, or you can surf there right now on www.justiceisnow.org. And it is only fair to give you a trigger warning. This podcast does contain graphic descriptions and frank discussion of sexual violence. Some listeners may find it disturbing or triggering, so please practice self-care. And if you don't think it's for you, then please don't listen. We receive no government funding for this important work, and so we're entirely reliant on donations. So if you can help us at all, please donate on the website www.justiceisnow.org. Thank you. Previously on the Justice Is Now podcast. Yeah, I think that especially in uh, Western culture, there's a lot of shame historically and in other cultures that's attached to sexual behaviour generally. So it's very hard to unravel shame and taboo from kind of sexual behaviour for both men and women. And I think that within that set of dynamics, it's been used often to effectively oppress women. It also varies cross-culturally. So I was fortunate enough to, you know, spend several months when I was sort of younger in, in Sweden. And in Scandinavia, it was common to have mixed changing areas, for example, in swimming pools, and people would be naked. And for, for somebody from the UK, which I think is still quite a kind of repressed society, sexual-wise, it's still emerging, I guess, in the Victorian era, that seems so radical that men and women would be wandering around kind of naked in the same space. But after a while, you realise just how normal and kind of healthy that is. And you think, well, wouldn't the world be a different place if we had, you know, kind of grown up like that? Even today, it seems incredible. Men are still voicing these attitudes that, you know, the woman is, is a virgin. And if she is then in a relationship with a man, then that entails exclusivity in the same way that if you own a car, then you're the only person who's allowed to kind of drive it around. To step up and change and, and actually demonstrate that you can be a decent human being. And that's just struggling, struggling terribly with that. And this idea that you should actually have to treat um, a, a, you know, a woman as a human being. So they're tremendously confused. Um, so, but I do have some sympathy because I think as a young man, um, one of the problems is that your sexual prowess is so deeply scored as part of your identity by your peers. Thanks so much, Nick. Um, really interesting to start to look to the future and potentially, you know, what rejection will look like in that space. So just thinking about AI, um, what could that do in terms of, you know, gender relationships in the future? Oh, it's going to destroy them largely. I think it's just not to be too too uh, cynical, but I think I know quite a fair bit about AI. I've kind of worked uh, in, a lot in technology. But look, you've got <clears throat> two bits of three bits of technology which are really worrying. You've got things like ChatGPT, which is now indistinguishable from a human being, and will basically say whatever you you want it to say. Right. So you've got that. You've got things like Midjourney and other kind of um, stable diffusion that will generate any imagery you want and very soon any video you want and then you've got vr and you've got apple bringing out a vr headset which will recreate any experience that you want right so you bolt those three things together and you've got 
effectively a partner who will say anything you want, look and do anything you want, and, you know, kind of constantly be with you in your kind of visual field, in, in your space. These things are, this is not science fiction. This is already starting to happen. You can already get apps which are kind of advertised as sort of AI girlfriend, you know, which you can have on your mobile phone. And I think why those are so dangerous is it's a little bit like I have Alexa, you know, kind of in, in, in the home. And it's very easy. You just get used to yelling at it all the time. Like, turn the lights on, do this, do that, do the other. And I think AI assistants, because because of the way that they work, just encourage people to think that they can have whatever they want when they want it. And and there's no compromise and, and they can just be kind of super rude. And so I think that is, that's a terrifying prospect, kind of frankly. And you might say, well, isn't it good? Because all the horrible men will just go off and have their AI. But the problem is that we'll still have times where we need to interface as human beings. And I think our kind of addiction to digital surrogates, if you like, will make it that much harder for us to behave like decent human beings in, in real life. So it's just such an interesting space, isn't it, to think about what's going to happen in that. And you're right. And, and learning, you know, you only learn through interaction and also you only learn from your mistakes and you only learn from experience. And if you don't have any of that and you're just interfacing with basically like a computer human, you're never going to get challenged or... Yeah, yeah, even just we take consent. You know, consent's a really yeah. important topic. And you learn about consent in different contexts where somebody says no, right? And 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 that, what about a digital environment where nobody ever says no to anything? You know, that that's, as take a specific example, that is why I think it's problematic. Definitely. And that, that then goes back to the, the start of the conversation when we were talking about ownership and having that yeah. ownership over somebody. It's like, the prize of ownership, isn't it? That AI, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or friend or whatever it is, it's that ownership and you're, ne you're never going to get challenged. And that is very, that's a very scary thing to think about with consent. That there's, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, it creates, we all know this anyway, but it does create such a false life. Like that is, yeah, interesting, Nick. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> so, I mean, Thank you so much. I think it's been really, really helpful, insightful just to, you know, start to really unpick this topic. And I just wanted to ask a bit more about, um, there's a lot of people talk about this as well, like shame when it comes to the yeah. shame that people, so I suppose if you were going to give somebody some advice about if you're getting shamed by people or if you're feeling external shame, um, how do you try and resist letting it become internalized? It's a great question. A there's a guy who I really admire, a writer called um, John Ronson, who's who's written a book called So You've Been Shamed. And he looks at people who have been sort of shamed on social media and how it impacted their lives. And no surprise, generally, it's tremendously negative. And I think that um, it's that's shame, which is embedded through those words. It's delivered using those words that you talked about. That's the delivery mechanism. Once you've labeled somebody, as you say, as a slag, there are all other kinds of social penalties that go along with that. People are excluded. People are treated poorly. You know, effectively kind of discrimination follows in the wake of that. And that sort of doubles down on that sense of shame. So I don't know. I think I'm reluctant to offer advice, you know, as a man. Um, but if I think back to John Ronson's book about being shamed, I think finding a way just not to accept that social pressure and to connect with other people who have replaced effectively that shame with pride. You know, I, through social media, 
you know, I, I learn a lot through listening to women, uh, people like Drew Afualo, who is constantly combating, you know, quite vigorously kind of chauvinism, finding people who share that perspective and who are just prepared to say, no, no, we're not going to be ashamed. We're going to be proud. You know, this is this is who we are. This is legitimate. We're not going to be oppressed by the use of these kinds of labels um, and, and that kind of word. So to the extent that I understand it, it's only really by listening to other people. But if I had to summarize what I've heard, it's by being just not accepting shame and connecting with other people who are part of that community who, who are like minded. So you've got some sort of support system. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Nick, because I think there's a lot of people who will be listening to the podcast who will just really want to reach out and hope that you know that community exists and obviously will signpost to different people. But I think just knowing that somebody's written a, a book about that shame and um, what it can do to people is so important because when, when we work yeah. in terms of obviously the sexual violence space, one of the worst things is around the shame that, that people feel and that's effectively been you know inflicted on them. Um, yeah. And internalised, and you know that some of the long-term consequences we see of people with the um, binge drinking, you know, strong medications. There's just so much I think that people don't realise about the impact that shame can have on people. Yeah. Um, and also how shame is a power and tool of keeping people quiet uh, and less resistant. Yeah. And that's that's a. It's almost like shame can be a weapon. I think. Um, right. But isn't it interesting how in this conversation you sort of assumed that women have to defend against it, but really men should not be using shame as a weapon. You know, they are the ones really who, who need to change. And I think they're to be slightly more positive, I guess, because I think a lot of this is sounding quite negative. If you're a young man, I think one of the great things is with things like TikTok and other social media, there's more opportunity than ever to hear kind of authentic you know, female voices talking about their experience, talking about things like red flags, talking about things that, you know, that they find, you know, troubling or concerning about male kind of behavior. And so I think the onus is on young men not to steer in the direction of kind of the Andrew Tates and, and the people who are just reinforcing mis misogyny, but actually away from that and say, no, 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 if, if I want to have good, healthy relationships with women, I want to hear their voices, understand their perspective, and you know I'll I'll, I'll grow through that experience. And they, they can do that really easily, you know. So I, I would hope that more young men, especially, would would do that. That's so helpful. And I I think also um, I kind of wanted to mention a point to you, which is quite interesting about this whole space as well. Like for example, I don't hate men. Um, and I think sometimes when you kind of are just sticking up for people or talking about these things or like commenting on things that you've heard or noticed or your experience or standing up for victims, for example, of sexual violence, often people are like shocked or they're like, well, oh, wh why is that? Is that because, you know, why do you always think men would do that? Or, or And it's not that at all. It's just for me, it's about like human rights. And mm. I just wondered why there seems to be this potentially that 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 judgment on people again like you have to hate men if you're pointing out things that have been happening to women and i know also they happen to men as well it's not completely not acknowledging that but i wonder why that always seems to come up when i do stuff they're like is it because you hate men or this always happens to men or men don't do that and this side like defensiveness when you know we're not all out to attack men we are just trying to say look this this is a problem for us and just try and voice it I don't, I don't know if you give any perspective on that, Nick. I know it's a big one. <laughs> yeah, I, I do have a bit. I think 
I'm glad to hear that. It's very reassuring because I think it is very kind of easy to end up in that position. I'm also a little bit wary of the kind of the not all men defence, you know, which men often say. And, it, and the reason that's problematic is because it tends to divert attention from, you know, real issues that need addressing, like um, uh, uh, sexual assault. Uh, I think I was looking at some stats at something like somewhere between one in four and one in six women will be you know victims of sexual assault so just saying you know not all men in a kind of dismissive way i think is really unhelpful but my position in answer to your question is that it's about behaviors so it, it's not about a group it, it does so happen that the majority of you know sexual aggression is on the part of men which is you know provides a statistical basis for being wary of men at the very least but actually what we're tackling is not men per se we're tackling that behavior and there will be some, you know, women who um, are kind of guilty of sexual assault or kind of other forms of, you know, manipulation. Um, but today, predominantly, those behaviours exist on the male side. So I think that my position is let's tackle the behaviours, you know, regardless of, you know, who it is. But with a focus on men, I think today um, it's the behaviours, not the not the group. Oh, that's just such a good way of summarising it. It is about behaviours, not about the group. Um, and I wish maybe we could get that message out a bit more and um, potentially, you know, other people working in this field could just maybe focus on that as well. Like, not the, it's not the genders, it is the behaviour. Um, yeah. But also, yeah, I think there can be a denial. You know, there's always that, that sense of sticking up. You know, you've got to stick up for... Like, I, I will often stick up for women just because I'm a woman. And maybe it's that same sense sometimes. You just jump to the defence and without maybe thinking about what's behind it in the first place. So, yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I also think sometimes I saw this reaction on TikTok and it, it made me stop and think is that now if any man who speaks out in a way which is perceived as being sort of pro-women is then sort of labelled, to use the expression, kind of like a male feminist, and then there's this shame attached to it um, where people have said, well, this is just some kind of manipulation strategy to endear yourself, you know, to women, you know, posturing as caring about women's issues. And I think, wow, that's a really twisted kind of mentality. It's like, firstly, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm married, you know, I don't, I don't, it's, it's not some kind of um, flirting tactic. And, and secondly, it's actually in predominantly what, what I talk about is, I suppose, in a sense, aimed at men. Because I think, yes, obviously we should care about anybody who's suffering from, you know, that kind of treatment. But actually, if, if men need to hear from some other man, simply because people tend to role model and people who look a bit like themselves, then that's quite important, you know, to actually improve their quality of life. Because if, if, they, if they don't turn things around, they're just going to get rejected time and time again. They're going to get angry and bitter and and lonely and and increasingly misogynistic that's not good for anyone so I, I don't think it's necessarily i'm sure there are people who are guilty of that but um i think speaking out on on women's issues is as important for men as it is for women thank you and you know it's really nice to hear because again when um you kind of actually also when you know going to sexual violence when you look at things and women, uh, you know, can face in, in court, for example, can face lots of myths around things. And and actually, when you look into it, what's happening to males when they go through the court process, there's often the same mm. judgments on them. And um, particularly um, when we've been working with um, 
gay men, some of the things that I've said about them. So, you know, they always say when one thing affects one person, it affects the other because we are all kind of, you know, that whole synergy, you are kind of connected in one, in some way, but it seems yeah. to be it's almost like separate. But I always think about, you know, safety and offending and how that links to all of us, really. Kind of like a whole, you know, a bit um an idealistic thing, isn't it? But if one person hurts, we all hurt. But, you know, perhaps yeah. that's just, it's a very idealistic way of looking at it. But people don't, I always wonder that about, kind of cruelty as well you, just, you can separate yourself quite easily from um, there was a lot of psychological research done about under what conditions people would be cruel following on from the war actually um and uh, it was a guy called milgram and he found that the more you could objectify the other person the more cruelty that you were capable of and so the things that you're um talking about there are psychologically fairly well researched the more that men objectify women the more they become capable of cruelty. But conversely, the more, as men, we learn to treat um, women as human beings. It seems incredible to have to ask that, that we would do that, but I think, it, I think it is true. The less we will see that kind of cruelty, you know, between the two. And so I think that, that point you raised is, is really important. That's so true. And also maybe like the objectification of men. I think sometimes the more we objectify men, the, the same thing as well. Like we can be cooler to them about expectations on the way that they look and focus more on their looks um, as opposed to their personalities and and other values that things bring. So I think, yeah, objectification is, is definitely working both ways now. Yeah, but I, I think there's there's still a difference between objectification and, and looking attractive. I, I heard somebody make this point uh, quite powerfully, I think, on TikTok, which is that men will sometimes say yeah but look at that woman you know she's you know putting on makeup and you know um uh, and wearing a, a swimsuit or whatever on instagram she wants to be objectified and he said no no no, no. this that's a different thing it's like wanting to look attractive and be attractive both sexes can want to look attractive and be attractive that's not inviting the other person to objectify you and i think quite often those two things are, are kind of conflated definitely definitely Hmm. Um, well Nick thank you so much uh, for your time really really appreciate it and um, really fascinating and um, you know thank you so much for coming on the podcast and we really hope we can have you for a follow up uh, and and delve into this more because I think as you have you as you've identified there's things that are going to be happening particularly with AI as we move into the future so yeah thank you again for your time thank you it's a privilege to be invited on If you've been affected by anything you've heard in today's episode, there is support for you. All the support lines are listed in detail in the show notes of each episode. Do feel free to reach out and access any support you need. Thank you once again for listening to the Justice Is Now podcast. Mm-hmm.